Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the House of Pod, a show where we pull back the curtain on the world of medicine, we answer questions about your health, and we interview great guests. I'm Joe, and I'm not a doctor. And I'm Lizzie. And I'm Kave. We're two gastroenterologists. What's a gastroenterologist? You know, the doctors who work with your digestive system. Say what? You know your liver, your pancreas, your intestines. Where now? Your butt, Joe. It's your butt. Oh. On today's show, we have Dr. James Chenoweth, emergency room physician and toxicologist, and he's going to talk to us about the use of some of these non-lethal, quote-unquote, non-lethal forms of crowd control that's used by the United States police. So uh, it's a really important topic, I think, to discuss now. I think by the time this episode comes out, we're going to have less protests, and if maybe the protests will have stopped, but there's a very good chance that's not going to be the case, and there's an excellent chance that at some point, again, in the future of this country, maybe even soon, there will be more protests. So I think both for our listeners who might be out there in the protests and our listeners who are in the medical profession and might run across injuries received by the, the, the protesters, I think it's a good thing for us to go over. So James, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk with us. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Um, why don't we start with... Um, you know, tear gas, that's the thing that like you see on TV. I think they used it like, maybe, maybe, you know, but like in Tiananmen Square, we just celebrated like the 31st anniversary of that. Yeah. Um, the U.S. military has used it in the Vietnam War um, and obviously other chemical weapons. And a lot of things were banned uh, by the Chemical Weapons Convention uh, in the past. So what do you, 
what do you think about the use of that and the toxicity of that and the fact that police are using it? So um, tear gas has a really interesting history behind it. Um, you know, the very first one um, called CN, which is the main component in what was used to be called MACE. Um, MACE is now essentially any other um, form of pepper spray, but they're all aimed to be really potent irritants of the eyes, the mouth, cause a lot of sneezing, cause a lot of coughing, cause tearing, cause you to want to squeeze your eyes shut and kind of be disorienting. And the goal was originally when they were developed after World War I was to be used in war to kind of break enemy lines. So just like all the other weapons of war, the chemical weapons that were used, they're meant to cause uh, both incapacitation, not necessarily death, but to take the enemy troops out of the equation and also cause fear. Um, fear is a really important component of all of these, all of these compounds. Uh, the problem with the original tear gas, CN, was that, well, it, it did work for, as an irritant. It wasn't all that potent, and it also had a relatively narrow, from a medical standpoint, like a therapeutic window. So the toxic to potentially lethal window was relatively narrow as far as, uh, as these different tear gases go. And so CS was developed, which is the main component of all the tear gases you see now. It's much more uh, potent from an irritant standpoint at much lower concentrations, but it has this huge therapeutic window where you essentially have to be in an enclosed space for a long period of time with it or have some sort of predisposing condition like severe asthma or things along those lines to get severe toxicity from it. And most of the time when people get removed from the exposure, they do well. After CS was developed, it was used in war, uh, particularly it was used uh, during the Vietnam War uh, pretty frequently by the U.S. military. And then uh, even though it doesn't have this uh, high potency and dangerous, uh, dangerousness from a like, lethality standpoint, it was all these agents were included in the Chemical Weapons Convention because it's impossible to tell the difference between these less potent tear gases and things like nerve gases like sarin and filament. So if you're going to be in a war scenario, you don't want the enemy to think that you're using uh, a nerve agent uh, and then retaliate using another nerve agent. So that's why they were included in the, in the Chemical Weapons Convention that was passed, I believe, in 1998 um, by, the, by the Senate. And an interesting thing about that is that all of these riot control agents were actually like, while they're illegal to use in war, it specifically says in the Chemical Weapons Convention that they can still be used for crowd control. Um, and so it's this weird thing where you can't use it in war, but you can use it against your own people. Um, That's and we've seen it used assume, a lot. They assume that the protesters and people who the police are using it against don't have it, right? You're talking about like this whole escalation, right? This is like war theory. Yeah. Like, um, you know, that if you attack, they're going to attack you back with equal or worse warfare and obviously innocent protesters, peaceful protesters, even protesters who are looting do not have anything that is similar or higher in caliber. Right. I mean, that's the, yeah. this is a discrepancy that doesn't, doesn't necessarily make sense. Right. I'm not sure what perspective of that is more cynical to say that the police aren't <laughs> the only reason they use it when it was ratified by the Senate to not use it is because the, the protesters don't have them or the people in the streets don't have them. 
or if people are more willing to use them on their own citizens. I don't know what, which perspective is worse. Um, I, it was actually ratified by the Senate in 1997. I know that because I read your blog, and it's a very good blog. <laughs> and you wrote about it. Thank you. So you also talked about more serious effects that can happen, like stromal injury, edema, tearing of the yeah. conjunctiva. And you also mentioned some allergic reactions, GI problems, and that death has been reported. I was actually... Yeah, uh, and also spontaneous abortions have been uh, uh, reported with it. The the one interesting thing that really makes it, I think, a, a point we have to discuss now, though, is that it does seem to increase respiratory um, problems. It triggers asthma. In fact, there was that one protester recently who had her asthma triggered, her actually dying from it. But there was a study that you discussed that went over military recruits who were undergoing yeah. what's called mass confidence training. Can you tell us about that study? Yeah, so it it seems um, so. Mass confidence training is done. Uh, it's it's done both in police training and in military training. And what it essentially is is that um, all these people are given gas masks, and in order to really trust it, you have to understand that it's working. And so what they do is they essentially put them in an enclosed space. They fill that space with CS gas, and then they have them breathe for a period of time. Then they have them take their masks off. And they instantly feel these effects. They're most of the time they're forced to stay in the space for 30 seconds to a minute to experience what that is, and put their mask back on. So they have an experience of having this irritant in their eyes, being disoriented, and being able to get their mask back on. And so it has this dual benefit of both feeling confidence in the mask actually working and being able to put it back on when you've been exposed to something like a chemical agent. Um, what they noticed a long time ago. Uh, was that they, they were using really high concentrations and they were seeing that a bunch of people were getting acute respiratory illnesses. And so they've been trying over the years, at least in the military, to decrease the concentrations with the hope that they would decrease these acute respiratory infections that were resulting in people after this training losing time in basic training. Uh, what they found was that, yes, they can decrease it, but that there's still a significant increase in acute respiratory infections after the mass confidence training is done. And really the only exposure that they're having is CS. Now there's a bunch of different reasons why that could be happening. Maybe it's causing them to have an increased risk of infection, like uh, they're being exposed more or um, something about the tearing and the rhinorrhea that occurs as a result of that is resulting in uh, them getting infections. But it's pretty clear that these increase the risk of infection, which in the age of COVID makes you really wonder, you're putting these, you're exposing large groups of people in close proximity to each other to a chemical irritant that's causing them to sneeze, cough, causing them to tear, and they're likely going to be taking their masks off because of this and yeah. exposing people around them. Or, th or that video where the police officer takes a mask off the protester and sprays him either way. Right, um, right. That's a different degree of uh, statism. Right. That's not mass confidence. Um, but that actually, I've never done it myself, but people talk about scuba training and I've seen videos and that's like identical. You have to have faith in like kind of your equipment and um, it sounds like parallel to scuba training. Except much, much yeah, more. Yeah, it seems, it seems really similar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Scuba I've never done either one and terrifying. never desire to do either one. Um, mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about treatment. Um, like let's, let's start with for people who are out there in the protests and if they're exposed right there. And then let's also talk about uh, in the medical setting as well. What, what recommendations do you have? 
Right, and this is kind of the reason why I originally wrote the little review was that we had um, some of our staff that was going to the protests and was acting as uh, as essentially field medics. Uh, and so I felt like I have the experience in toxicology and research and I can write up a review that's evidence-based that can hopefully be beneficial to those people and to the people in the emergency department. Um, the number one thing is to remove people from the exposure as best as possible. Um, in most cases, that's going to be enough. You know, 10 to 30 minutes after removal from exposure, most people's symptoms will go away. Uh, in the process of that, you really want to get to higher ground because these are heavier than air. And so they will settle. It's not a big issue in Sacramento because it's pretty flat. <laughs> um, but if you're somewhere where it's hilly, you don't want to go downhill from the exposure. You want to try to go uphill as best as possible. Uh, and then just using things like copious amounts of water, particularly for eye exposures, because these compounds, especially CS, we call it uh, tear gas, but it's not really a gas per se. It's, it's either superheated into a vapor or it's pulverized and released as kind of a powder. And so that can result in, in this kind of getting into the eyes and you need a lot of copious irrigation to remove it from, from the eyes, especially if there's a direct uh, exposure. That seems to be a major key. It sounds like it requires a lot of irrigation, either with water or saline, more so than most people would probably be prepared to have with them. But a lot of it for a long time, prolonged period of just washing it out, that seems to be the key, right? Yeah, what what I saw in some of the reviews that I was that I was reading was somewhere in the one to two liters uh, range for irrigation of the eyes, which is a lot more than the little water bottles that most people have to irrigate. Right. Um, if you had things like eye wash stations, that would be ideal. If you're, if you're protesting somewhere near a <laughs> yeah. company that has a chemical chemicals and an eye wash station, that would be <laughs> awesome. But uh, really, a couple liters of water should be enough for most people. Yeah. What about baby shampoo? I've heard a lot of people talk yep. about baby shampoo using that. Yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thought in, in the world of toxicology. We love these theoretical <laughs> treatments that sound really good uh, until they finally get tested. Like sucking yeah, snake yeah, venom like, out of a yeah, wound. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't work, but I mean, it makes you feel like you're doing something. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they've, they've tested uh, for some of these agents done randomized trial of baby shampoo versus water alone. And unfortunately, baby shampoo added to the water doesn't really seem to do anything. That being said, because a lot of these agents are particularly, um, if they're in a liquid form, they're dissolved in some sort of uh, solvent, a non-water solvent. Uh, you could potentially, if you had a direct exposure to the eyes, get some benefit from using baby shampoo. So for pepper spray straight to the eyes, I think baby shampoo and water might still be a useful thing. Um, but for most uh, tear gas exposures, baby shampoo probably isn't that helpful beyond just the effect of the water and the amount of irrigation right. that you're doing. It's just remove yourself, irrigation. And if people are protesting now, do you have any advice about, you know, Kave and I talk all the time at work about PPE, personal protective equipment yeah. for Corona. And I wonder if there's any extrapolation or similarity to like goggles or glasses. Should people be doing that stuff? 
I think if you're putting yourself, particularly if you're a medical professional and you think that you're likely to be exposed at a protest, I think it's a good idea. Uh, I would use something in the line of what you would use for an airborne room. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you goggles are great, but if they have the little holes, holes and vents in the side, then mm-hmm. the tear gas is just going to get right into the goggles. So it's not particularly useful from that standpoint. So you want to have something like chemistry goggles that are meant to be used in a fume hood yeah. so that you're not getting any, any of the gas into the, uh, into the goggles themselves. And then, uh, from a mask standpoint, uh, an N95 is probably better than nothing, but it's they're not really suitable for use for uh, petroleum-based products, which some of these uh, agents are actually dissolved in. And so if you have something like a P100 or some of those uh, reusable half-base elastomerics, that would be the best uh, for use. That, those would be protective because they're meant for, uh, for organic gases. I have not heard of that, but all I can think about is Breaking Bad. So I'm pretty sure yeah. whatever they're using for Just meth like fumes is probably appropriate for tear gas. So yep. listen up, everyone. Yep. Something like those. And you can, actually, you can actually look and see if you have a, a mask. You can go to the manufacturer's specifications, and it'll actually tell you if it's good for organic fumes. Yeah. And if it's good for organic fumes, then it should be good for tear gas. Can you tell us more um, about like pepper spray? You know, I know many people, many women who carry pepper spray in their yes. purse or whatever. Um, so what is that? Um, what's that made of? And uh, what do you do for it if you're exposed to it? it so, the, so the old version, MACE, was the CN gas that uh, I talked about earlier that's very similar to CS. Uh, now it's all essentially related to capsaicin. So the most common being something called oleoresin capsaicin or OC, and those are dissolved in an oil-based solvent and just meant they're pressurized and sprayed at a surface. Sometimes they're mixed with a marking color or uh, uh, something that brightens up under ultraviolet light. So you can, if, if you're using it as a self-protection means, you can actually identify the person that attacked you afterwards. Most of the police stuff isn't being used in that way. Um, so from that standpoint, once again, it's really decontamination is the mainstay. Um, hopefully trying to avoid direct sprays into the eyes because those are the times, because these are under pressure, that you can actually get penetration below the surface of the cornea, the initial uh, layers, and actually get deeper penetration and injury to the eye. Um, that's when you see the really serious eye injuries as a result of the of the pepper sprays. Uh, but if you're getting kind of passive exposure, then just irrigation should be adequate. As a quick aside, I yeah. really appreciate that you refer to them as less lethal weapons. These are not non-lethal, really. They're less lethal because in all of these, there's cases of people dying from them, and they all have particular levels of, of, of risk. And this next one, I actually am more concerned about because the pictures I see from injuries of rubber bullets are horrific. And there's, there's been even journalists, at least one, right, who's lost an eye due to these rubber bullets. They're, they're no joke. Can you tell us about rubber bullets or beanbag rounds? Yeah, so last I had heard, there were nine reports of people being permanently blind in an eye just from the protests over the last couple of weeks. Um, but I'm sure the number's higher because that's just uh, what's been reported in the media. Um, but the 
the history of these rounds kind of tells you a lot of what you need to know about them. Um, they were, they're, they're kind of the, the offspring of these baton rounds that were used uh, by the British against people in Hong Kong. So protesters in Hong Kong were being shot with baton rounds that were made of wood. Uh, and the whole idea is that you're using something from a distance that's less than lethal. I, ideally, you're not causing, you're not using regular bullets, so not causing a massacre. And so you can still cause bodily harm while not resulting in the, uh, the propaganda war that the, that the historical massacres of protesters led to. Um, so, you know, it's much easier to kind of ignore a few people with serious injuries than 20, 30 people that get shot down while they're protesting. And so it, it allows for this less than lethal force. Uh, and then after that, the British government developed this, uh, this rubber bullet, which is effectively just a bullet encased in rubber. It's exactly what the name says. It's a, it's a metal bullet and it's shot with a, less, uh, a, a lower velocity charge. So it doesn't have as much kinetic force, but it's still effectively a bullet encased in rubber. Uh, and they were originally designed for use in Northern Ireland during the during the troubles. Um, so once again, for use on on people protesting uh, inequities. Um, and they very early knew that there was a significant risk of of fatalities with these. the The very first case series um, had a couple of deaths out of ninety people, and that was in 1975, only five years after they started being used. What were the deaths uh, from? Like just um, internal kind of hematoma bleeding stuff? Most of the deaths resulting, most of the deaths resulting from these, well, there have been reports of BFib from direct, uh, like precordial trauma. Uh, most of them are from injuries to the head and neck. Mm -hmm. So if you look, there's a big case series of these rubber plastic and all these other impact, what are called impact, kinetic impact projectiles. Uh, and what they found was around 3% of deaths, and most of those were in people that were shot in the head or the neck. So these were originally designed to actually be shot at the ground and bounced into the legs or the lower, lower part of the body. They're meant to hurt, but they're not meant to cause permanent injury was the idea behind them. Now, if you aim them directly at someone's face, there's some soft points there. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. you're, you're shooting something at, that with a uh, mass and a high velocity directly at someone's face, there's going to be a risk of death. Yeah. yeah that was going to be my follow-up because you do see that. I mean, you see in some of the footage, like they're aiming at people's heads and they're like pointing at least the, their weapons that way. They're not, they were meant just like you said, to be bounced off the ground. And, and I'm, sh I'm sure there's still hopefully most people using them are doing that. But it seems like people are getting hit, hit in the head, the neck, getting injuries there. And, that sounds and, like a game of quarters, thing. like just trying to aim for the ground to bounce up into someone's like body. That sounds really like this is, by the way, sounds like a great idea for the police no longer to have normal bullets and normal guns. Just give them, you know, there'd be a lot less deaths. It sounds like maybe this, you know, not against protesters, but it may be people who are pulling people over, you know, and all the unfortunate deaths, if you just gave them rubber bullets, maybe that would be uh, some alternative. But um, aiming at the ground sounds actually quite challenging. I'm not sure. I think the, I think the whole thing is, uh, it, it's challenging because 
you understand that there may be situations where uh, police or riot control would actually need some of these less than lethal devices. Um, and it's preferable to a gun with a regular bullet uh, when you're talking about protesters, particularly when you're talking about maybe there's only a couple of people that are actually a real threat and versus most people are just there peaceful and the risk to those bystanders if you're using uh, traditional lethal force would be really high. But at the same time, I don't think that the current training seems to be adequate to, to say that really you're only supposed to be aiming at the directly at people if you're an imminent threat of harm. So essentially the crowds are rushing at you Mm-hmm. and they have weapons and you just have no other choice every other time if you're trying to just disperse a crowd you're supposed to be aiming low and that based on the injuries that that we've seen as a result of this does not seem to be what's happening and so either either they're not adequately trained or there's something else going on that's resulting in this happening um, but at the very least I think there needs to be a significant change in the training as to how these devices are used because innocent people are being permanently injured and even killed as a result of them. Yeah. The pictures we've seen, the stories we've seen are horrific. And I mean, Lizzie's, I see Lizzie's point. I mean, yeah, it's probably better than using a gun on protesters, but you should not be using a gun on protesters unless in very, very, very rare situations. I mean, I, you know, I, I think it's important for us and that's why we want to cover all these things with you is that we, you know, we support the protests and we want uh, people out there to be safe during this process. And uh, we appreciate that someone is looking at this sort of with a medical eye and looking at the literature about this. Um, and, and thank you for doing that. Um, we'll, we'll put a link up to the article you wrote that reviews all these things. I think there's a lot of good information, the stuff you went over here and more in that, in that article. You, you've also talked about the, the intersection between policing of drug policies and, and uh, race in this country. Can you tell us a little bit about what you discussed in the past? Yeah, so more recently, I have a, a big interest in um, in substance use disorders and the treatment of substance use disorders. Um, and I've worked with uh, a group called the Bridge Program here in California that tries to increase access to things like buprenorphine uh, in the emergency department and in the hospital. Um, because we know that if we can get people into treatment, we can actually save lives. You can decrease the mortality uh, of people from 6% to 3% in the year after an overdose by just starting them on buprenorphine. Like it's pretty crazy there, the, the reduction in mortality, that's better than people coming in with a STEMI, getting a stent. <laughs> yeah. So you can, you can do a lot, of, a lot of good. And this is all part of the idea of we're trying to treat substance use disorders, not as, uh, not as like moral failings or as necessarily crimes, but more as, more as some, a medical, illness that needs adequate treatment. Um, just like hypertension and diabetes, if you get people on the right medications, you know, they stop, uh, they, they, most of them can stop using these substances that are otherwise destroying their lives. Uh, and often they, they enter into these substance use problems partially because they've made a poor choice, but sometimes it's 
they they did the things that a lot of other people do and they just happen to be the unlucky person that ends up having uh, the genetics to to lead to addiction um, and so while a lot of people can try drugs as teenagers and in college and go on to not develop a substance use disorder some people are unlucky in that they have a genetic predis predisposition and if we try to transition from viewing it as a crime and a moral failing to something that's treatable, I think that that would go a long way in decreasing the over-policing of these people that all they, they don't need to go to jail, they need to go into treatment. And we can, we can do a lot to decrease the over-policing that's happening in these populations by, by trying to do that transition. Now, in terms of how that is disparate over different racial groups in this country, how is that in, in what you're seeing? And I'm, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't pretend to be um, completely 100% up to date on all of the data on incarceration rates for people stopped or, or encounters with police related to drugs, but I think it's pretty clear that uh, at least in the 90s, the differences in the, the prison sentences for crack cocaine versus powdered cocaine, it was a huge racial disparity that was happening because crack was used more in, uh, in impoverished black communities and cocaine was used in rich suburban white communities. And the differences in the, in the policing that was happening around that and the, uh, and the prison sentences, is, is, you know, it's clear to see. I think you can see that with a lot of this history of drug prohibition that if you go back to the very beginning, the origins of it, a lot of it has a huge racist component to it. Um, you know, you look at the origins of the marijuana prohibition and it was targeted primarily at Mexicans, Mexican immigrants. Uh, heroin, a lot of the heroin prohibition was originally targeted at uh, black populations. And so if you just look at the history of this, of, of all these prohibitions, you can see that the origins were kind of, were, were racist. And you may not still view them as such, but that's how they started. Yeah, the entire criminal system, I think we all know, right? And then all these people, uh, you know, the plurality, if not the majority are black men, then they come out of prison, then, then they can't vote, then they can't get a job. It's like everything that's happening in the world right now is all unfortunately very interconnected. And, you know, I just keep noticing the terrible patterns and I'm sure drug abuse and drug sentencing, we know that that is part of the, the 1990s and, and, and even before. So um, it's very true. So thank you for highlighting that. And we do know also that assisted drug therapy is much more beneficial than just telling somebody to quit cold turkey, right? Like that's a huge part of the fentanyl epidemic, which is a lot of young white people um, in the country. So, you know, it's getting a lot of attention these last 10 years because it's uh, the white population. So it really is universal. So we do need to promote that as best as we can. Right, and I think, I think that actually brings up an interesting uh, topic because I think all of us, went through training during the period of time where people were really recognizing overprescription of opioids in the beginnings of the opioid epidemic. And we've kind of seen the reaction to it. Uh, and I think the impulse to decrease prescriptions of opioids is good, but what wasn't considered in the process was what would happen to those people that were already 
yeah. already using, yeah. right? And so, so people were pushed to stop prescribing to people that were had been pres- over prescribed over the course of a decade, and now that poor person doesn't have anywhere to go. And at the same time, there was no increase in access to actual treatment for opioid use disorders. Like we still have the X waiver still exists for buprenorphine, which is insane because I can prescribe as much OxyContin as I so desire. But if I want to prescribe someone buprenorphine, which is a partial opioid agonist, so it's safer than just pure opioids, I have to have a special training. And I have to, if I'm going to prescribe it more than once, I have to have, uh, I can only prescribe it to up to 100 patients at a time. Um, There's all these extra regulations when we know that this drug is safer than these other opioids that are being prescribed, but there's this barrier to providing treatment that makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think that we're going to have to keep covering this subject. We've sort of been sidetracked. I mean, we were starting to really put a lot of attention into this before basically the world started to end. So I I (laughs) think at some point we're going to have to readdress it. But in the meantime, your review of the effects of some of these crowd control measures has been really useful. Where can people find you to read more and to hear more? Uh, so I, I have a, a blog that I recently started, restarted writing, um, the original post is from, I think 2017 and there's nothing until this year. Um, <laughs> but nothing, nothing like an apocalypse to get you <laughs> reinterested in writing a blog. Right. Um, but it's, uh, this com, Uh, and then I'm on Twitter at this weekend talks and I hope to continue writing these informational blogs. Um, I think that providing the citation as a, as a researcher, providing the citations for people, if they want to go and read the original papers, I think is really important for medical professionals as opposed to the pop uh, literature out there where you can read the information and it's generally accurate, but you don't have a citation that you can then go check to make sure that you really understand what the person's saying. Yeah, I'll second that. I really like your blog and I love the fact that you provide all the citations for the stuff you write about. And it's and I think it's done in a very impartial and I think reasonable way for a very unreasonable time. So uh, <laughs> thank you so much thank for you. coming on. Really appreciate it. Um, take care up there. And uh, I'm sure we're going to talk more in the future. We have a lot of toxicology related things to discuss. Sounds good. Thank you. So, see you, buddy. The opinions on this podcast are broadcasted for educational and informational purposes only and do not represent the opinions of our employers. These opinions are not intended as a diagnosis, treatment, or as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a local physician or other healthcare professional for your specific healthcare and or medical needs or concerns.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.